Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavrita Yordana Ozband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Nidarim, daf kaf hey, page 25. So on Ahmed Aleph, we have an interesting discussion about the language people use when they make a nidr, when they take a shw- specifically nidarim, I guess, not shvot, right? The question of whether a person would use their own words to make, to formulate their vow, or do they revert or resort to something that is indeed formulaic? You know, a, a formal structure that everybody knows, that's language that you use when you're taking a vow. I'm thinking of, you know, for example, again, television courtroom drama where the idea of swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I understand that, you know, people also can affirm and we don't have to take oaths in court, but there's a formula there that is, you know, that is the words. You don't say like, no, but really I'm telling you, I'm telling the truth, right? It's it's a there's a formula that that works. So this is the question of the Gemara. So the question the Gemara says, does a person you know, generally use um, his own language when formulating a vow. Vahatanya, so the Gemara brings a bright. We find that there's this that in there's a story with Moshe, Moses, right? When he was swearing, um, he was giving an oath to be sworn by Bnei Israel, by the children of Israel in Arvot Moav, the plains of Moab. He says, he says to them, you know, don't think that I, or let me say differently. It's not don't think it's do know that, that I'm not giving you this oath according to your understanding, right? Just what you want, but really it's according to my understanding. And really most importantly, the understanding of Hamakom, Referring to God, and there's a verse to support this, of course, that says, "Neither with you only am I going to make this covenant from Devarim Kavtet, from chapter twenty-nine in Deuteronomy." So the implication there is that it's not according. When you say it's not according to your to yourselves, but according to to me and to God, you might think that it would be very formulaic. On the other hand, it also is not so clear that He's not giving them their own words. My Amar Israel. What did Moshe say to Israel? Love Hachikamarlahu. Isn't it the case that he said to them, Dilma Avedatun Mile Vamritun Aldatenu? Isn't it the case that they said to him that he said to them, Perhaps you'll do sins, right? And then you'll say that the we took this vow according to our own understanding. And because of that, Mishum Hachi Amarlu Aldati, not Aldatinu, don't give me your oh, but that's how we understood it, right? That it's like a, a personal understanding and it can therefore go awry. He says, No, you're gonna ha- you're gonna take this oath on my understanding so that there's no room for you to really make this error, which is a really interesting narrative discussion. And should I think we should, you know, hold it for another day, but I think it's really worth inter- you know, it's a worthwhile investigation into the Parshanutamikra, the real, the exegesis of the way the verses present this narrative. Lafuke Mayas, the Gemara, the wants to know, you know, what is this coming to exclude when you have this warning that says it's going to be according to Moshe and then Hashem's understanding. Right? So it says to, we're going to exclude the possibility that they 
gave the title of the word God, right, to an item that was really the object of a vodazara, of, of idolatry, and then to say that really what they were doing was taking an oath to worship God, meaning that's pretty extreme to say that they're going to exclude the case where their own vocabulary might actually be a perversion, you know, this question of idolatry versus worshiping God. So the Gemara concludes here that Moshe was kind of staving this off by making sure, you know, that a person who takes an oath is in fact usually doing it according to his own understanding so that you can't, I want to say that like when you have, when you're trusting a person's own formulation to be reflective of the larger commitment here, which is what a vow really is, then um, he's making sure that it's not open to misinterpretation, not too badly, because otherwise that would not be the vocabulary that he would choose. And therefore it ends up being still according to the person who's taking the vow, according to that person's own understanding. And then goes on to talk about, you know, you know, is this really what Moshe meant? And what does it really mean in the context of, of God and this idolatry? But again, I think that what's interesting here is the the very question over whether an oath is taken in a person's own language, own vocabulary, own choice of words, or whether it's more formulaic. And then what exactly is Moshe Rabbeinu doing there um, in the plains of Moab when he's abjuring, abjuring the people to to swear? I mean, I think it's a very interesting tangent that this doc gets on, because on the one end, it's within the context of Nadarim, but I think it's really trying to examine what exactly was Moshe trying to get B'nai Yisrael to do, you know, with this particular oath. Like, think about it. It's like Moshe is about to die. These are sort of his, like, parting words. And I, I don't know. I was just not sure I totally understand, like, why is the Gemara you know, so taken by the language that Moshe actually uses here. So I thought about that. And I, I think part of the issue is because the Gemara always wants a proof text to make a point, right? And if you can find a biblical example of people using either formulaic language or their own wording, then that kind of supports the answer of this discussion. So I feel like the break that comes to say, oh, look, there's Moshe Rabbeinu. And from these words of, you know, whose opinion, you know, who's, according to whose da'at, according to whose understanding is this oath being taken, we can really find ourselves a proof text for this, for this um, deliberation about the personal language. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's like shot in the text of the Chumash. No, and I, I think what this Bryce is really talking about, like take away the context of Nadarim is, you know, the discussion that's really happening here is, you know, how do leaders ensure that their what they want to impart on the people actually gets transmitted? And this sort of invented, you know, uh, I don't want to use the word invented, all these scenarios the Gemara presents of like, maybe Moshe should have said it this way, but then it could have been misinterpreted this way. Maybe Moshe should have this way, but then it could have been a misinterpreted Part of what this Gemara is trying to say is, is that they understand that sort of like when that transition happens, like when a leader leaves through death, let's say, you know, most likely, because that's where it happens with Moshe. Or also like, remember, Moshe is not 
going with B'nai Israel onto the next part of their journey, right? Because it's interesting that the Gemara specifically, you know, like it's this vow that gets, you know, that happens, you know, in Moab, you know, because he doesn't get to go into Eretz Yisrael with them. The Gemara is more grappling with like, how does that leader ensure by very specific language that what he wanted to teach actually stays with the people and doesn't actually get misinterpreted? Right. Yes, I think that's part of it. For sure. It's a it's a very poignant discussion, at least in my mind. All right, I'm going to move on to the Mishnah, which is now going to go to the third category that began the beginning of our parak, and this is going to talk about, uh, you know, nidareish uh, gagot, right? Unwitting or mistaken nidarin. So what are they? Nidareish gagot, im shatiti. So let's say a person says that some certain item will be co-named to me. If I eat or drink, uh, if I eat or drink uh, today, right? And then he remembers that he actually did eat and drink earlier that day. So in other words, he's saying this is going to be forbidden if I ate or drank today, but he forgot that he did actually eat or drink. So in other words, his intention wasn't, you know, he sort of mistakenly ended up sort of had fulfilled the vow already. Another example would be where the person says, basically, something will be co-named to me if I eat or drink today. Uh, and then he forgets and then he eats and drinks something later on. OK, um, another example would be. Um, so, again, so sorry, just to go back. So of those two examples, one is, is that he had eaten previously and the other one is he forgets that he said that and eats later on. Another example is Amar Konem Ishti Nahitili, right? He says a Konem that my wife should benefit from me. Shaganav Ekisi Vishita Epini, because he says, like, she either stole from me or she struck my son. And then later he finds out actually Ganba, or she finds out that he didn't steal. So in other words, he makes a nether based on uh, sort of mistaken a mistaken premise, right? In other words, because he didn't um, he didn't make a stipulation that said she should be co-named from benefiting to me if she did this. It said she is co-named because she did this. But then he finds out that that actually didn't actually happen. Um, fourth example they give is Ra'au Tanochlin Te'inim sees a group of people eating his figs. Ba'amar Korban and he says, you're forbidden to me, Korban. The Nimsu. Now, remember, that's an interesting example because remember, there's a discussion previously about whether or not you can use the language of korban because korban is not inherently uh, something that is a sore. There, you can eat it. So there, remember, there was a whole discussion with that. The Nimsu and he finds out that actually it was his father and his brother who, of course, he would eat his figs. But there were other people with him. So, in other words, it's a neder. Uh, in regards to his father and his brother, but not with the others. So what's the law in this case? This is an unusual case. The father and the brother are permitted, but the other people are forbidden. That both of them, the father and the brother and everybody, actually would be. And the reason for this is because part of the neder is made void that the whole neder is. Um, and so uh, the Gemara, you know, starts off with Kishem Shenidarishka Gotana, right? It's they start with the Brisa. 
just says mistaken or unwitting nidarim are permitted. So here's an example where shvuot and nidarim are actually the same. If they're done, bishkagav, they're done unwittingly, in all those cases, they're permitted. And the Gemara goes on to explain, what's the case of unwitting oats? It's the case like Rav Kahan and Ravasi. Um, they both were students of Rav, and they disagreed about what Rav said. One said an oath that Rav said this, right? And the other one said an oath that Rav said this. Right? So one had to be wrong because they each made a, a vote, a, a, an oath about what Rav actually said. But each one in his own mind was actually taking a shvua that was actually a correct, uh, that was a correct shvua to do. Um, and then the rest of the daf is going to explore a little bit mo- uh, more the machlokas between Beit Shammai and Beit Hello. But I just want to point out one other thing it says. Tanan Hatam, they have another Mishnah here while they describe this that talks about we make an opening out of Shabbat and Yom festivals. In other words, here discussing is, is that let's say a person swears off, you know, takes a nether, excuse me, that they will not have meat or wine. We say like, well, maybe that wouldn't really be true for Shabbat and Yom Tov, right? Like nobody would make that kind of nether. Right, and so we say that we would sort of by by So in the beginning, they would say on those days you still were allowed to eat those things because that's not like a why you can't do that really for Shabbat and Yom Tov. The rest of the days it would be asur. Ad Shabbat Rabbi Akiva until Rabbi Akiva came, and again, this is very typical with Rabbi Akiva because Rabbi Akiva always is the one who has a chiddush. Right, Rabbi Akiva is not a first generation Tana. Right, he's later. But he always comes with sort of like some big new way of understanding something that sort of always turns the halacha around. And he basically says, right? The principle is that if a vow is nullified in part, then it has to be nullified in its entirety. And so based on that, they would not allow this exemption anymore that you could sort of have like just on Shabbat and Yom Tov, uh, it was allowed and, and, and the rest of the time it wasn't. But again, this idea of nidarim shkagot is sort of like somebody uses a particular language and sort of walks themselves, I would say, accidentally into a nether that could not really have been what they had intended, uh, what they had intended to do. And again, this is really based on a particular sensitivity to language. I think we see this again and again, the sensitivity link to language, and then it, it changes, right? Depending on the circumstance, whether this is considered a good thing, a, a viable thing, it's going to, e- each time, right? I feel like we're we're building, how do I say this? That we're going around in spirals and each time going up a level, let's say, in terms of um, the importance, the significance of the language, and also in terms of whether one's vow is considered we talked before about whether the vows are a good thing or a bad thing. Here, it seems to be um, the language itself is yet again the focus and the question of the viability of the vow. I, I don't know if I've said that the way it, it was clearer in my head, I think, than how it came out. But. No, I think you're saying it's attention to the language and then based on that language, does that make the vow viable? And this parak is basically discussing 
specific language that makes the vow not viable, makes the vow not viable. Wow, that was a tongue twister. Well, <laughs> that's our tap discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrum website. Let us know what you thought about the stop on our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 